good morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 44. You'll find in your bulletin an outline uh, that should be helpful in following along in today's message. Our scripture reading is going to be the first portion of Genesis 44. Listen now to the inspired, inerrant word of the living God. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination, you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from my Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning, having fellowshiped with one another, having sung praises to you having prayed as the congregation, lifting our needs to you and asking for your blessing. And now we come to the point in our morning where we have your word open before us. We pray that in these next few minutes, you would minister to us from your word, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, opening our eyes, granting us faith and repentance even this morning. We pray for your blessing upon these, your people, in this, your hour. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have been working our way through the book of Genesis and have covered these chapters to this point. It's taken us some time, as you might imagine, and today the goal is to look at two whole chapters, but when you think about what we've been looking at 
in this section on Joseph. We started discussing Joseph back in chapter 37, and then except for one excerpt in chapter 38 where we focused on Judah and the goings-on with him, we have been looking at Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. We've been looking at the Joseph narrative and, and what God has done with him, how he was sold into slavery and how he went down into Egypt and, and prospered there in, in a, a, a certain fashion, though he was eventually thrown into prison, having been falsely accused, and there he was left to sit for a number of years until he was brought to prominence once again when he was given the opportunity to interpret a dream, uh, a number of dreams for Pharaoh, and thus through that process God raised him into his position of authority. So we've been looking at the story of Joseph, we've been examining his life and, and what we learn about God's sovereignty and, and providence at work in this story. And one thing that we've noticed is that, first of all, it's a large portion of Genesis focusing on this one man and the goings-on in his life. And as we have seen God at work sovereignly orchestrating events uh, to provide for the people of God, to provide for the entire nation of Egypt and others as well, we have looked at God's sovereignty. We've seen God's hand at work blessing through even the hardship of Joseph's life. And it's hard to read those chapters about Joseph and not see that recurring theme again and again, chapter after chapter of God's hand at work. Today, as we focus on chapters 44 and 45, we're going to not see the, the story in its overarching picture, not to examine uh, what is going on in the broad scheme, but there, these two chapters are devoted to reconciliation between brothers. And so for our time today, we're going to look at that reconciliation and see what we can uh, learn about that topic of reconciliation. You see, the Joseph story wouldn't be possible without the friction and the conflict and the difficulty between these brothers that set up this whole uh, narrative that we've been reading. Joseph's relationship with his brothers, his uh, older brothers, has been difficult from the start. And we saw back in chapter 37 how his father had blessed him in particular ways that made him odious in their sight. And then he had these dreams given by God. God had blessed him in particular ways that made him odious in their sight again. And then they ending up, end up selling him into slavery. And so that has not made the relationship better. But in this chapter, in these two chapters that we're going to look at today, we will see uh, a form of reconciliation brought about that I want us to pay attention to in our time today. And as we're doing that, as we're working through these chapters, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that you can reach into your own experience, into your own relationships, uh, perhaps in the distant past, perhaps not too distant, where you have relationships that have been strained and perhaps even broken where there needs to be reconciliation, and for one reason or another, it has not happened. And I don't know what relationship comes into your mind with the number of people in this room. Uh, I'm sure it's a number of dif different circumstances that have their own nuances and ins and outs. But as we work through our passage today, I want you to keep that relationship or those relationships in your mind. I think we're going to find help 
from this passage. If you're looking at your outline there, you see that I've started off with intro and setup, and the reason is because these first 17 verses of chapter 44 are really a setup. You have Joseph who's in a position of power, he's in a position of authority, and in this relationship, in this situation with his brothers, he's using that to put into place a particular relationship, a particular situation that is going to uh, be useful, is going to be very interesting for us to read about and very helpful uh, for them. And so you look at the first paragraph there that we read earlier that, that after the brothers had dined with Joseph the night before, and uh, they still don't know it's Joseph, by the way. They're still mystified as to who he is. He's just the Lord of the land with all the power and all the wealth. And as they are leaving, and just before they leave, Joseph instructs that, uh, that his special silver cup would be put into the bag of the youngest one. They have these sacks of grain, the, the sacks are filled up, and then he puts the money back in the sacks, and he's going to, we've seen that uh, plot before, he's going to do the same thing again, only this time he ups the ante and he takes his special silver cup that obviously belongs to him. This isn't something that you buy at, uh, at the store or could find any other place. It's clearly his, and they've just been at his house having dinner, and now he has it planted in the bag of the youngest brother. And so he sends them on their way, and then he's going to accuse them of stealing that silver cup. And we will see how the story progresses as we look at verses 16 through 13 there. Uh, the brothers insist on their innocence. Of course, they didn't take this cup. When the steward comes and finds them, and he, he kind of accosts them and says, how could you have done such an evil thing in, in stealing from the Lord? Why would you do that? Uh, they say, no, we're innocent. And they say that whoever is found with the cup, let him die. They're so certain of their innocence that they're willing to say, if you find this cup on someone, let that one die, and the rest of us will be your slaves. And so... Joseph's servant begins to search, going through the bag, starting with the oldest and working his way down. And you can, you can feel, on one hand, the tension build, but on the other hand, they're thinking, we didn't take it. It's not here. But the story progresses, and he searches through from the oldest to the youngest. Finally, he gets down to Benjamin's. Remember Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother. Benjamin, who is the only other son of Rachel. Benjamin, who is the, the special one, the precious child that Jacob was unwilling to send down into the land lest harm befall him. Never mind that while he was having that conversation, there was a brother already in jail down in Egypt. But that didn't matter that Simeon was in prison. It's, it's Benjamin who's the special one. Benjamin, whom dad loves. Benjamin, who is, has already lost his brother and, and is very special. Lo and behold, in his sack. Among his possessions, there's the cup. He has been found guilty. And so, of course, the party is taken back into Joseph's presence. They're going to have to deal with him and this situation. Well, you look at, at verse, uh, verses 14 and, and following there, and you see that uh, uh, Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell on the ground before him. Remember, they have bowed to Joseph before. But the, the situation has gotten more dire, and they fall on their faces before him. 
Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? I don't think he's saying that he works magic and that he practices divination. He wants them to have in their mind the idea that Joseph might know stuff, divinely given information. He might know their secrets, the kind of secrets that he could have no way of knowing. I think that's uh, why he's bringing up this idea of divination is so they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he can look into our hearts. He can look into our history. He can look into who we are, and he can see our guilt. And so he talks about this practicing divination, and, and, uh, and why would you do this? In verse 16, Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He admits guilt, but it's a double entendre. When he says, our guilt has been found out, he knows they're not guilty of taking the cup. He knows they didn't take it. But this situation has come about in a way that reveals, that, that, that uncovers their, their real guilt, which of course has to do with the selling of their brother. But he, he says, our guilt has been found out And so, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So what Joseph is saying to the brothers there who have who have been brought back and their their goods have been examined and it's been found that Benjamin is guilty. Benjamin is the one who has this cup. Benjamin is the one who now is in danger. And Judah says, well, let us all be your servants, including the lad. And Joseph says, no, you can all go free. You didn't do anything wrong. You've been found innocent, except for Benjamin, except for the youngest. That one has been found with the cup in his possession. He alone shall stay. He it is who's going to stay down here in prison. The rest of you are free to go. Now, this is a setup. When you read through it the first time and perhaps even the second time, and you kind of wonder, why is he doing this? Why is he going to such an elaborate ruse? Well, here's the test that he's giving his brothers. The presence of Rachel's son... Remember who is the favorite. The presence of Rachel's son has become an inconvenience, has become troublesome for the brothers. Have we seen that before? Have we seen a situation before where a son of Rachel, the favorite son, was a problem for the other brothers? Oh, yeah. Back in 37, we saw that. Back in 37, that was exactly the situation that Joseph had become odious in their eyes that dad loved Joseph more and he gave him this special coat. Now God's giving him these dreams and he's he's telling us about these dreams and we just hate that kid. So first they decide they're going to kill him and then they decide to settle on selling him into slavery. You see, Rachel's son, the favorite, got in the way before and what did they do? They got rid of him. Well, here's the situation. Here's a situation where the freedom of these ten brothers 
is at stake. Why? Why are they in trouble? They're in trouble because of that child of Rachel who happens to be Jacob's favorite one. He has become inconvenient. He's causing difficulty for the whole family. What will the brothers do? The last time they were in the same circumstance. It seemed like they didn't hardly bat an eye when they sold Joseph. What are they going to do with Benjamin, who is the other son of Rachel? That's the test that's been put there. That's the situation that, that Joseph has arranged, has brought into place to see what his brothers will do. What will we see? Well, what we end up witnessing, point number one there is repentance. We end up witnessing repentance. Listen to these words starting in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. What's Judah going to say? This son of Rachel, the favorite one, the youngest, is causing problems for all of the brothers. What will he say? Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Judah is recounting family history. He's recounting what's going on with Jacob and the situation that Jacob has already lost a son, that that Jacob loves this boy. And to take this boy away from Jacob would cause Jacob to die. We continue on in verse 24. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your father, my servant, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shale. Now, therefore... As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my 
life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You see the change in Judah? Judah, whose idea it was chapters ago to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah, who was so callous in his dealings with Tamar. You see what a change has taken place that that here he is, that same one who thought up the idea of selling Joseph, that here he is saying, I will stay and put myself in danger. Only let the boy go. We are not doing this again. So Judah agrees to stay in his place. This is This is a strong sign of his repentance. If you look at that paragraph or those paragraphs there starting in verse 18 through the end of that paragraph and you circle the word father, you'll find it 15 times. And that's not just because Judah happens to be telling a story about his dad, it's because that's his emphasis. He's concerned about his father. Finally, he was callous about selling Joseph regardless of what it would do to his dad. Joseph was his dad's favorite son. When his dad was brought the the garment, the coat of many colors, and, and, it was, and it was torn apart and had blood poured all over it. And, and he watched his dad examine it and say, Surely beasts have killed him. He didn't shed a tear. No concern for Jacob. And now years have passed. Now, by the way, he's lost two of his own sons. Now he's had his own guilt, his own sin exposed in chapter 38 with his sin with Tamar. He's He's gone through some change in his life, and now we see that one who couldn't care less about his father now is motivated entirely by the grief that losing Benjamin would cause for his dad. And so he makes this impassioned plea. And in light of Judah's impassioned plea, we see, secondly, Joseph initiating reconciliation. Look at chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Finally, we're to that point. They've met him a number of times. They've been accused of things by him. They have, they have eaten with him. They've, they've, they've feasted with him. They've been in his presence, but now finally he makes himself known to them. Verse 2, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So he announces who he is. He makes everyone leave. He's, he's weeping, and he's weeping so loudly that like neighbors can hear it. He makes himself known, and his, his first question after saying, I'm Joseph. Haven't you figured it out? I'm Joseph. His first question is, is my father still alive? The impassioned plea, the speech that was given, the, the repentance that's evident there in Judah in the previous section, his concern for his father strikes a note with Joseph, and he wants to know, is my father still alive? But his brothers were so taken aback. And they're replaying every incident in the last, last 20 years, realizing this is Joseph. They were dismayed at his presence. And look at verse 4. These, these words, starting in verse 4, are pivotal in the whole Joseph narrative. So Joseph said to his, brother, his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What a reconciliation. If you remember all that he has gone through, all the turmoil that he's experienced, all the pain and the loss, all the lies that have been told, all the harm that has been brought, all of the injustice done to him at the hands of his brothers and at the hands of others, to make such a speech is astounding.
More on that in a moment. But we see Joseph initiating reconciliation, and then we see him providing relief. The chapter concludes with him um, sending wagon loads of provision to Jacob and his family and extending very generous hospitality to them. And Pharaoh is on board with the exact same thing, wanting to provide for Joseph's family, very pleased that they would be coming down there and, and giving them a place to live. It's a very generous hospitality. Jacob uh, is provided for. The brothers are provided for. Benjamin, particularly, along with Jacob, is provided for by Joseph, by Pharaoh. Look at verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Finally, this old man has some relief from his grief. He's being provided for physically at a time when he needed to be provided for and their whole family needed to be provided for. But more to the point, more to the heart of Jacob, he wanted to see his son. And his son was restored. What implications can we bring out of this? There are many, and we could, we could draw out those implications that are in the text that play out through the rest of history uh, in Scripture. We could do that for sermons and sermons. The implications, the, the typology here, pointing forward to Christ and what He accomplishes is is everywhere in these texts. What, what I want us to see today are these two implications regarding reconciliation. Here's the first implication. One key to forgiveness is recognizing God's sovereignty. One key to forgiveness is recognizing God's sovereignty. Joseph does this in verses 5 and 7 and 8 of chapter 45. He says, You sold me here, but God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Do you hear his high view of God's sovereignty? 
And do you hear how that high view of God's sovereignty comes to play in a situation where he has been harmed on a horizontal level by his brothers? They sinned against him. And he points to God's sovereignty and thus is able to forgive them. For Christians, those of us who know God and His sovereignty, we are enabled to forgive in part because of that sovereignty. The person who harmed you is not sovereign. The person who harmed you, that person's will is not ultimate. There is a God in heaven who works even in such situations. And Joseph will say to his brothers later in 50-20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, giving Joseph's perspective on how God's sovereignty works with the harm that other people might bring into our lives. And for him, it empowers him and helps him to forgive them for what they did. Not because it lessens what they did, not because it lessens the evil of what they did, but because he has a way of understanding and in light of God's sovereignty that he can now see God's hand at work. Christians are enabled to forgive in part because we believe in God's sovereignty. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The will of the person who harmed me, who has committed this injustice, the will of the brothers was not ultimate. Yes, they harmed. Yes, they committed injustice. But there's more at work. Joseph recognizes that. The Christian recognizes that. But the fact that God meant it for good helps us to forgive. The second implication. Forgiving a sin of one another does not mean it is never to be spoken of again. Forgiving a sin does not mean it is never to be spoken of again. Joseph refers to himself how? He says, I'm Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And he's not rubbing it in. And he's not being hard on them. But he recognizes I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He says again in verse 5, that was verse 4 of chapter 45, and here in verse 5 he says, you sold me here. He's not bitter. He's not saying those things in anger. He's not bring it up so he can chastise them, so he can, so he can whip them in some way. But he does bring it up. You see, forgive and forget is not really what we're after. Often we need to talk about we need to talk through and work through the very sinful actions that we're forgiving so that we can understand them better, so we can see the patterns that are involved in order to understand what repentance looks like, in order to understand how to heal damage in our relationships. We're not forbidden to talk about sins we've forgiven. We just don't continue to hold them over the head of the person we're forgiving. You see the difference between those two? It's not that once you forgive this sin, it can never be addressed again, as if it would be wrong for you to bring it up again. Now, it would be wrong for you to bring it up again in a fight, 
when you, when you want to pull out some weapons against that person again and really go to war again with that person on something else, then you're going to pull it out and use it as, yes, that, that's wrong. But when we're talking about relationships that have been harmed, that have been, there's been damage done from one person to another, we need to understand that. We need to understand how to, how to, how to go around it, how to, how to heal past it, how to avoid it in the future, how to help other people avoid it. We need to understand what kind of damage perhaps this sin has done in our relationship. So it's not wrong per se to bring up a sin that has been forgiven. It is wrong to hold it over that person's head. It is wrong to bring it up for the purpose of punishing that person, using it as a weapon once again. But the reality is we sin against one another. And the person who wronged you, if this is if this is a relationship, an ongoing relationship, I can guarantee you, you have wronged them in some way. We're not going to war with each other. We're trying to understand how to live together as sinners. And so we might occasionally need to talk about our sin. Those are the implications. A couple of points of application. First of all, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. And do so at the first sign of repentance. Did you notice what, what drew Joseph's compassion? What, what raised his emotion? What caused him to get to a place where he couldn't hold it in anymore at the beginning of 45? What was it? It wasn't Judah apologizing to him for having sold him into slavery. Boy, Joseph could have held that over their head for a long time since they didn't even know who he was. He could have played that one uh, to the end, right? But he didn't. He recognized genuine repentance in Judah. He recognized this in the brothers. Repentance and sorrow, you could see that the hardness of his heart regarding his father, regarding brothers in, in times past, that hardness of heart that was present when, when they sold Joseph into slavery, he could see they had changed. And Judah's, Judah is willing to give himself in place of the younger brother who is now the problem. There's repentance, and, and, and he responds immediately to that. And he pours out this speech that we have at the beginning of 45. Why? Because he sees repentance there. Judah showing a concern for the welfare of his father, a concern that was so genuine that it resulted in Judah being willing to give himself, to sacrifice himself, to be a slave himself so that his brother could go free. That's what tipped Joseph off. And at that moment, when Joseph saw genuine repentance, he saw a change of heart, even though it didn't come with the words, oh yes, we sold our brother very wrongfully into slavery low these years ago, and it was a terribly wrong thing to do, and we repent. Nevertheless, there was repentance there, and Joseph leapt on it to give forgiveness. Be quick to forgive, and do so at the first sign of repentance. Secondly, be the one to initiate reconciliation. Be the one to initiate reconciliation anywhere it's possible for you. I want to look at a couple of aspects of 
the way Joseph reconciles with his brothers in verses 4 and following of chapter 45. First of all, don't sugarcoat wrongs that were done. We're not downplaying wrongs that were done. They sold him into slavery. And he says so. Verse 4, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't say, ah, you know, it was really no big deal. And, you know, I, I, you know I, I, it wasn't that bad anyway. I kind of ended up, you know, in a, in a good job, so it was no big deal. He doesn't downplay it at all. Don't sugarcoat wrongs. Joseph doesn't do so. We shouldn't do so. Let's identify sin as sin and deal with it as it is. Secondly, be careful of your heart that you aren't holding out for the wrongdoer to suffer just a little bit more so that you can feel better. I mean, imagine being in Joseph's spot. Joseph, who knew all this history, Joseph, who was the one who had the insider knowledge on what they had done and to see them interact with each other in light of having sold uh, their brother into slavery all those years ago and to, to watch and see how they're going to treat Benjamin and, and this position that he was in. And now he gets to be the authority. They don't even know he can understand their language. And he has full, absolute authority and power over them. He had opportunity to really see him squirm. To, to, to feel like he was able to get his psychological wounds filled by the pain of his brothers. And how often do we do that with people that we ought to just forgive? Instead, we hold it. We withhold it. We keep it back. And we're not going not gonna to give that. Be careful of your heart that you aren't holding on to it just to see him suffer a little bit more. Joseph doesn't want them to suffer anymore. And look what they did. He wants them to be at peace. Look at verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Really? Can, can you say that to the person that you are forgiving? When the person comes in, in repentance? How often do we want to make sure the offending party has suffered enough by our estimation, by our calculation? Because after all, you don't know how badly I've been harmed. Well, I don't know how badly you've been harmed. Be careful of your heart. Watch your heart that you aren't being vindictive, but instead truly forgiving. Third, recognize where God has used even the wrongs done to you. Joseph says to them, God sent me before you to preserve life. Oh, to have that kind of perspective in our life where we can see the wrongs done to us, and without playing down the wrongs done to us, without sugarcoating it, we can see, yes, that wrong has been done. I have been harmed deeply, and God has worked. That doesn't excuse the wrong. That doesn't cover over the wrong. That doesn't make it okay that the person did the wrong, but we need to recognize God's hand at work. He says in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God used that horrific thing that you did to put me here. God worked in my life, even through the harm that you did, Judah. 
how often do we focus so much on the harm done to us that we can't even see that God has brought good out of the evil and that we should be thankful for that good? Don't turn a blind eye to God's hand at work. Next, be generous in your forgiveness. Joseph is generous with his brothers and the whole family by providing a, the cartloads of food and all of that and bring him down into, into Goshen, giving them a home so that they won't perish, so that they won't struggle. He is generous in his forgiveness. Be generous in your forgiveness. And finally, make your forgiveness clear. Joseph doesn't hold it over their heads that they might still need to earn his forgiveness. He doesn't go part way. He doesn't give hints that he might be amenable to possibly one day, perhaps fully forgiving them. No, he makes it clear. His weeping is so loud the neighbors can hear it. He's falling on their neck. He's crying. He's kissing them. All of the brothers, and all of the brothers are apparently convinced, at least at this point, because they finally open up and begin to talk to him. He is clear with his forgiveness, and we need to be clear with our forgiveness. Make, make it clear that you are forgiving the other person and not withholding just a little bit to retain power. Isn't that what we do? If I really forgive that person, I will let go of the degree of power I have in this relationship. I'm not talking about an abusive marriage I'm not talking about those situations. Those are different considerations. I'm talking about normal interactions between Christians and in families. Forgive the person. Give up what you think is that, that handhold, that degree of power that you think you have. Give it up and let it go. So there are many things we could pull out of this text. But I think it would be a shame for us to pass by this moment of reconciliation and not talk ourselves about reconciliation uh, between one another. Where would we be without the forgiveness that we have in Christ? Where would we be? We who have sinned against God, if we will be willing to admit it, we who have sinned against God, worse than we've been sinned against. Why? How can I say that? Because God is holy, and any offense against Him is ultimate. Our awful guilt against God is given to Christ so that He is counted as guilty. He who had lived a holy life, He who had lived obedient to God from beginning to end, He who had done no wrong who knew no sin, was counted as the sinner, as if he were guilty of all of my sins and yours. And punishment was rendered to him. So that the result is for the one who has faith in Christ, the moment they look beyond themselves and look to Jesus and find Find Him to be Savior. Their sins are taken away. They're washed clean. They're forgiven. And righteousness is given in its stead so that the person who's, who's responsible for the guilt that was placed upon Jesus is now considered righteous in God's sight. 
Have we received forgiveness from God? Have we ever? And how can we not give it to one another? The story of Joseph here gives a beautiful picture of how it is we ought to do that. That we have opportunity. We are siblings in Christ after all. We get to call God our Father because of what Christ has done and only because of what Christ has done. We have been given, forgiven so much that when we sin against one another, we need to be reconciled. Seek forgiveness from one another. Give forgiveness to one another freely as Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at this story, we've seen the reconciliation of brothers. Brothers who were decades in disunity, and not just disunity, not just disharmony, but, but really at ultimate odds with each other, so much so that the one brother was considered dead and the rest thought that was probably okay. But you wrought change in Judah. You worked in the situation that Joseph found himself in, that even in the situation caused by their sin against him, you were at work, and you brought good, and you positioned that brother, the one from the pit to slavery to prison to Pharaoh's right hand to provide for your people. You worked good out of their evil, and I don't know. I can't identify the good that you work out of all the harm that is done to us, all the wrongs done toward us, all the ways we sin against one another, all the ways we've been sinned against. I, I don't know, but I know you, and I know that your word says that even though we so often mean evil against one another, you mean it for good. And in that, we take great hope and great comfort. And may we take that truth of your sovereignty, even in those situations, of your working good out of bad things in life for all Christians, may we take that truth and may we be quick to forgive one another, quick to recognize that we are just as fallen as the one we're forgiven. May we forgive freely, quickly, fully. And may you work to restore relationship. Father, I don't know what relationships came to mind when at the beginning of this message we considered broken relationships, harm done to us, strained, uh, relationships in need of reconciliation. I don't know what relationship came to mind, but I pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, that we would forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another 
in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you all. If you want to pray with someone, there's a family up here who would love to do that. Otherwise, you are dismissed.